This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The U.S. federal government spends more than a half a trillion dollars per year through contracts, buying everything from office supplies and automobiles to professional services, information technology, and complex weapon systems. The effectiveness with which the government buys these products increasingly separates mission success from mission failure acquisition can play a role in both the government's most laudable achievements and its highest profile disappointments. As agencies continue to face pressure to do more with less, getting more for the money spent through contracts is critical. Now, as much as ever, it is an imperative that government becomes a smarter buyer. Despite this critical imperative to get things right, acquisition remains one of the U.S. Department of Defense's most significant managerial challenges. What is the U.S. Department of Defense's Better Buying Power Initiative? What is DOD doing to promote competition, provide incentives, reduce the bureaucracy, and improve services acquisition? The IBM Center has published the first full-scale examination of the Department of Defense's Better Buying Power Initiatives, Beyond Business as Usual, Improving Defense Acquisition Through Better Buying Power by David Vanslyke and Zach Hoytink of Syracuse University. The report sets forth eight lessons learned about acquisition reform that's applicable across the government. I'm happy to welcome to the show the authors of that report, David Vance-Like and Zach Hoytink. Dave, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Michael, thank you so much. I really appreciate this great opportunity. And Zach, welcome to the show, your first time on. Thank you. Very much looking forward to this. Great. So, Dave, before we delve into specifics about your report, Improving Defense Acquisition Through Better Buying Power for the IBM Center, I'd like to get some context. And, you know, we've talked a lot about acquisition, and a lot of folks uh, who may be listening understand mission support functions like finance, accounting, IT. But perhaps you could describe for us federal acquisition. What is it, and why is it so important? Yeah, it's a great question, Michael. Um, You know, federal acquisition refers to the people, the systems, and the processes through which the federal government acquires goods and services, essentially designed to support its missions. And these include everything from simple products like office supplies and landscaping to much more complex products like weapon systems. And these products are acquired via contract. But the acquisition and contracting aren't the same. Acquisition encompasses the entire process, along which an agency identifies and defines its needs, solicits proposals, and awards a contract to one or more vendors. And importantly, then it also manages the post-contract award process. In terms of dollars and cents, 
acquisition is big business. It, it accounts for approximately about $500 billion a year in annual federal expenditures. So, Zach, um, now I'd like to turn to the case study of your report or the focus of your report, which is the U.S. Department of Defense. Would you provide us with an overview of the defense acquisition system and what are the key processes that compose this system? Sure. Another very good question. Uh, defense acquisition, when people think about it, they tend to think about defense acquisition in one sense, uh, but it's actually conceptualized in two senses. So it's three processes, which you can think of as the what, the how, and the way. The what is the requirements process, essentially the manner through which the department defines what it wants to buy. The how is what's called the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process, essentially how the department establishes how it will pay for what it's going to buy. And then what is typically thought of as the defense acquisition system is the way uh, the way that the department is going to ex- construct its acquisition programs, its procurements, which you can think of those two terms as synonymously. Uh, so when you put the three processes together, requirements, budgeting, and acquisition itself, you have what's called big A acquisition. And then when we consider the way or the defense acquisition system in detail, you have what's called little a acquisition. Excellent. So that's, that's a great summation and description. So who, who are the key players within the DOD acquisition community? And, and perhaps you could illustrate for us uh, the DOD acquisition chain of command, so to speak. Sure. Another good question. This is actually a community comprised of a large set of stakeholders. Of course, you actually have DOD itself, which begins with the Secretary of Defense, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, who's the number two person who manages the department on a day-to-day basis. And then you have what's called the Undersecretary for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, USD ATNL. Now, there are a variety of undersecretaries across the department who oversee these various mission support functions, for example, finance. But the USD ATNL, again, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, is the person who oversees the acquisition system on a day-to-day basis. Now, of course, there are other players as well. There's the president, there's the Congress, there's the industrial base, and then there's a whole panoply of stakeholders from academia, the think tank community, and even the media who have some role to play in shaping this process, reporting on it, and really broadcasting to the public what it looks like. Now, if we step back within the DOD context, The acquisition chain of command is basically in four parts. Again, it starts with the USD, ATNL, and then we move down toward what's called a component acquisition executive, or in the case of the military departments, a service acquisition executive. Uh, That person essentially runs the show from an acquisition standpoint on a day-to-day basis in their component, say a civilian agency like Defense Logistics Agency, or in a service like the Department of the Navy. From there, you move down to what are called program executive officers who oversee a portfolio of programs in a similar mission or asset area. So you can think of a program executive officer or a PEO for something like ships or submarines. And then you have the important person, the program manager, who is that central figure who oversees and is responsible for execution of an individual program. So those are the stakeholders in sort of a large big picture sense. And then stepping back within DOD, 
that's the basic chain of command. That's a wonderful description. So, Zach, your report for the IBM Center um, highlights the fact that despite 60 years of effort, getting better outcomes in defense acquisition remains an elusive goal. Would you give us a brief overview of the history of defense acquisition reform and why has it been such an elusive goal? Sure. The project to reform defense acquisition really stretches back decades and begins shortly after the department's formal establishment in the aftermath of World War II. It wasn't long after the establishment of the department and even before the establishment of the department, stretching back even into the early days of the republic, where stakeholders had really been disappointed with or continually frustrated with bad outcomes in defense acquisition. Now, we can think of outcomes in three senses the cost of an individual program, the schedule or the time it takes to complete and deliver an asset, and then the technical performance of the asset itself. And across each of those three dimensions, again, for a long time, stakeholders have been frustrated with the performance. Uh, So over the course of the ensuing decades, DOD and the rest of the stakeholder community have pursued a massive variety of best practices, attempts essentially to improve those outcomes, again, across a variety of practices. And if we look back approximately 30 years to 1986, the publishing of what's called the Packard Report. Now, there have been over 150 studies over these ensuing decades of what can we do in terms of defense acquisition reform. But the Packard Commission, named in honor of former Hewlett-Packard CEO and former Deputy Secretary of Defense David Packard, essentially provided the report that serves as the intellectual foundations of modern defense acquisition reform. And even at that time, David Packard is famous for having said, we all know what needs to be done. The question is, why aren't we doing it? So really, if we think about defense acquisition reform, the problem is not so much in terms of knowing what needs to be done, what practices need to be put in place, The real issue is with implementation, Uh, and there are essentially two quick challenges here with implementation. One is that this is a complex business. This is hard to do. And second, there are some cases in which getting a, a program started and keeping it going actually means not doing things that are otherwise considered a best practice. So, for example, if you think about estimating the cost of a program, essentially telling the budgeting community, how much is this probably going to cost? If you're competing with programs for funding, you may have some incentive to systematically underestimate the costs in order to capture funding. So that's just one example of a practice for which the the underlying incentive um, is to deviate from what is sort of the established best practice. So economists have a saying, incentives matter, the rest is just chatter. If you wanted to sum up why defense acquisition reform has been so hard over the ensuing decades, that... That might be a pithy sort of one-sentence statement of what's been going on. Well, that's great. So, Dave, despite the strong imperatives to get things right, uh, would you outline why acquisition remains one of DOD's most significant managerial challenges? I think you could sum it up in a word, people. The government's human capital. Uh, DOD simply doesn't have the acquisition workforce of the size and with the skills that it needs to, to really focus on and be able to deliver superior performance. And, you know, this is, the while the workforce is a, a common feature, it happens a lot, it's spoken about extensively with reform initiatives, the current situation is particularly troubling. As both DOD's own leaders and a number of external observers have observed, 
uh, and warned, the department's on the, the verge of a, of a major exodus uh, from the department. And uh, I think a real challenge for us is asking the question of where there's a lot of that institutional memory practices, relationships, understanding of processes, interaction with institutions, how's that going to be transferred? Who's it going to be transferred to? What's the knowledge and learning mechanism within DOD to be able to move that down into the organization? And I think, you know, the challenge, as Zach suggested, is how are you going to get the existing workforce that remains, how are you you going to motivate them? How are you going to recruit uh, well-qualified people? How are you going to incentivize these individuals to see acquisition as a rewarding career path as opposed to just a stepping stone to, to what they might view as a more desirable assignment? And so I think these are some of the more challenging questions confronting the agency leadership. And Dave, I like to stay on that kind of trade of thought. And more particularly, you know, why is it so important for the government and in particular the U.S. Department of Defense, to become a smarter buyer. Why is that so critical? So it's critical for every agency all across the government to be a smart buyer. But DOD right now is seeing a set of pressures that are kind of unprecedented in terms of both budgetary pressures and the mix of security challenges confronting the U.S. And so when we think about trying to return value for taxpayers and the warfighter, the question is, how do we squeeze the most we can from every dollar we invest in defense acquisition? That's a critical outcome that we've got to start focusing on. And that's not to say that we haven't focused on it, but really every dollar does count. And when we look forward into the next uh, decade, there are big portions of bills for very strategically important programs that are going to be coming due, including programs to replace each leg in America's nuclear triad. So when we think about sea, land, and air-based nuclear delivery capabilities, these are going to come due simultaneously. And the challenge, I think, is how do we maximize the efficiency and effectiveness with which these programs are executed? They're going to be critical to ensuring that they do not significantly displace other investments in core areas of the defense budget. What is the DOD's Better Buying Power Initiative? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors Returns. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What are the strategic priorities for the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division? How does the FBI's CJIS Division foster information sharing across the law enforcement enterprise? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Stephen Morris, Assistant Director, Criminal Justice Information Services Division within the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. 
exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with David Van Slyke and Zach Kointink of Syracuse University. Dave, your report for the IBM Center uh, is the first full-scale examination of, uh, of the Better Buying Power Initiative. And, and so could you tell us more about this initiative and more particularly, what principles underlay this program? How has it sought to enhance the department's acquisition performance? Sure, absolutely. Better Buying Power was conceived and is a comprehensive organizational change initiative. And it's aimed at trying to maximize the value each dollar that DOD invests in defense acquisition in improving the professionalism of the defense acquisition workforce and in maintaining America's technical superiority. It has three major principles. First, continuous improvement. Continuously seeking ways to execute programs more efficiently and effectively. A better approach to being able to improve defense acquisition as opposed to simply trying to change laws and regulations and departmental policies all in one great attempt. Second, that decision-making should be grounded in data and evidence. You, you hear Frank Kendall talk about this all the time, data and evidence, data and evidence. And third, that people are critical. People and critical thinking are the most important prerequisites for success in this initiative. So, Zach, as a follow-up, uh, would you outline the different iterations of the Better Buying Power Initiative, and how did this program evolve to date? There have been three iterations to date of Better Buying Power, so to give a little bit of a sense of the history, the first initiative actually came out of a larger defense efficiency initiative launched by then-Secretary of Defense Bob Gates. Better Buying Power 1.0 was the defense acquisition community's response to Secretary Gates's call for sort of greater efficiency and effectiveness in the way that the department does its business. And in accordance with that, Better Buying Power 1.0 really focused on a suite of specific best practices, uh, a specific set of practices that could be applied at one point or another in the conduct of defense acquisition programs. That started in 2010. In 2012, we saw the introduction of Better Buying Power 2.0, with a slight shift in focus from specific best practices to this whole idea of professionalism. Now, as Dave had alluded to a minute ago, Frank Kendall, the current Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, USD ATNL. Now, Frank Kendall had really taken Better Buying Power 1.0, collected the feedback, and thought there are some specific instances in which one practice works but another practice might work in a different set of circumstances. So he couched Better Buying Power 2.0 more in terms of professionalism, of using your knowledge and your critical thinking skills to apply the right tool for the right job in lieu of focusing on one particular tool. So with Better Buying Power 2.0, the focus again shifted from specific best practices to professionalism. Now, Better Buying Power 3.0, also championed by Frank Kendall, came out roughly in 2015 with a preview in fall 2014. 3.0 really focuses on America's technological superiority and specifically on the products the acquisition community buys to support that. Our air assets, our sea assets, our land assets, our space assets, increasingly our cyberspace assets. So as a means of preserving it and advancing a set of larger initiatives within the department, Frank Kendall took the opportunity with Better Buying Power 3.0 to really focus the acquisition community on 
what are we buying and how can we ensure that what we are buying really supports, sustains, and extends America's technological superiority going forward. Well, that's great. So, Zach, I want to continue and sort of um, dig a little deeper into a better buying power. In particular, your report focuses on five initiatives that are at the core of this effort. Uh, I'd like to explore each of these initiatives. And the first one up would be affordability and cost control. And they are fundamental prerequisites for acquisition success, especially for large complex projects, which you gentlemen have already described a little bit about. Would you tell us more about the motivation of this initiative? And what's the experience to date? Affordability and cost control are two of the major initiatives of the five that we looked at in our report. Um, They had initially been sort of put together, I believe, in 1.0 and then broken out as separate measures in 2.0 and 3.0. But for the sake of capturing them and given that they sort of complement one another, we looked at at them in concert. So let's talk quickly about each of those. Uh, Affordability. The specific practice that we focused on with respect to affordability is something called an affordability constraint. This is the idea that at a formal start of an acquisition program, the program would adopt what's called an affordability cap, a cost per unit, if you will, uh, that looks at essentially how much will this cost per unit, and we're going to use that as a key performance parameter akin to an asset's speed or its range or its data rate. It's essentially a planning tool. So when we're developing the design of that asset, we're focusing on those other targets that we need to hit. Again, things like speed or range or data, but we're not focusing on hitting those to the exclusion of cost. So we take into account and try to trade off cost with these other technical performance parameters. And we have a hard cap on how much we're going to let an asset's cost be. So that's the affordability constraint. Again, it's it's a cap set at the beginning of a program and effectively becomes a planning tool for which to make trade-offs between technical performance and cost as an acquisition program unfolds and as the design of the underlying asset comes into fruition. On the cost control side, we looked at something called should cost management. So after a program is underway, it's funded to what's called a will cost estimate. As the name suggests, essentially an estimate of what a program will cost on a year-over-year basis. However, should cost is a, a set of targets that are set below the will cost estimate and that the program attempts to hit through sort of tighter and more efficient execution over the course of time. So constantly examining the drivers of cost underlying the program and trying to, if you will, squeeze the fat out. Um, So if you think about these, again, affordability is a planning tool. It's a cap set at the beginning of a program and used as a way to make trade-offs. It's sort of a top-down instrument. Should cost is more of a bottom-up instrument. It's a management approach that's used on an ongoing basis to execute the program below what its estimated costs will be. Excellent. So what are some of the challenges, Zach, that uh, DOD leadership will face going forward to both enforce affordability constraints and reward aggressive use of should cost management? Yes. So the available reporting or the publicly accessible reporting suggests that DOD has enjoyed some success in putting these practices at the place, particularly with respect to its largest programs. But in terms of the challenges going forward, now that those practices have been put into place, the challenge really is follow through. Uh, If a program looks like it's going to breach its constraint 
or increasingly to hit all of those other technical performance parameters means raising the affordability cap, for example. Um, how can the leadership ensure that those programs stay within the affordability cap? Can they enforce those trade-offs? Can they force the programs to make them? Can they force the programs to give a little bit on the technical side for the sake of remaining within that affordability constraint? So this really comes down to what actions are the leadership going to take to make sure that the affordability constraint is treated with the seriousness the leadership would like it to be treated with? And can the leadership apply and that force on a consistent basis. That's terrific. And I want to talk about the next um, the next item, which is uh, competition. And, and it's one of DOD's most powerful tools for achieving efficient and effective acquisition. Uh, but it's just that. It's just a tool. Uh, would you tell us more about DOD's efforts to promote competition? And what has the mo- what's the motivation and intent of this effort? And, and more importantly, what's been their experience to date? So they're doing a good job from a competition perspective uh, in the sense of they're at least trying to inject that force into their procurements. Competition is a powerful tool for incentivizing DOD's industry partners to behave in a way that's desirable, to keep their costs under control, and to perform well. Now, with respect to better buying power itself, the story is somewhat mixed. The idea there was to mandatorily recompete that contract after, say, three years. The problem with mandatory competition is that it doesn't provide any incentive for the vendor to behave the way that the department would like, uh, investing in cost control and performance improvement. If you have a risk of losing that business in three years, what's your incentive to make those upfront investments in cost control and performance improvement if you can't recover them over time? So going forward, um, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, they stripped away that sort of emphasis on mandatory competition. And in 1.0 and then going forward, really put an emphasis on creating and maintaining competitive environments, Um, not mandating competition, but creating an environment in which competition can still be leveraged and an incumbent can either be replaced or have their business scaled back in some way. So there's a sort of a credible threat there from the vendor's perspective that if I don't perform well, keep costs under control, do the other things that DOD would like me to do, there's a potential that I could lose my incumbent position or the advantage position in which I find myself currently. Um, so this was this was really a, a focus in DOD's major programs for which competition otherwise isn't always a, a, a viable option or a strong force. If you think about a large, complex asset, there aren't that many players in industry who can produce it. So while they may all be pursuing that business up front when that program gets started, after one of those vendors has been selected, essentially the rest of the market may disappear. So to counteract that, uh, better buying power put in place or really called for and reemphasized some practices by which programs could maintain a competitive environment, by which they could prevent that sort of lock-in that comes after a contract has been rewarded and the rest of the market disappears. So we looked at two practices in particular, uh, one called modular open systems architecture, which is essentially a a means of designing an asset um, without proprietary technology. So essentially, if you think of proprietary technology as a a sort of glue that holds various components of an asset together, in the case of, of it being proprietary, the only one with possession of that knowledge is the incumbent vendor. They can't be replaced easily. Another vendor cannot come in and pick up where they've left off. But if you use a design approach like 
modular open systems architecture, um, it's all publicly available. It's essentially an industry standard so that one vendor can come in and replace another vendor more readily. Zach, what are some of the challenges going forward that they're going to have to anticipate and and, um, overtake in this area of competition? So I think big picture, applying competition in the right way, and in the sort of smaller picture and the specific ways we looked at, applying it at the right time and in the right places. So, Dave, defense is, uh, like any sector in the U.S. economy, global economy, it's a business. Um, How has DOD worked to motivate firms to be productive and innovative? And more importantly, what incentives are being developed to date to provide stronger and smarter incentives to the industry? You know, DOD uses a variety of tools to try to incentivize industry. And under the Better Buying Power initiative, they put particular emphasis on two tools, source selection methodologies, and contract types. So DOD makes the majority of its source selection decisions, in other words, who it awards the contracts to, on a best value basis. And and what that means is that they select from among competing proposals to evaluate what's going to provide the department with the best return on its investment. Now, along that continuum of what constitutes best value they can evaluate bids more or less in terms of price. Now, while Better Buying Power version 1.0 did not speak to this issue, and there were a lot of complaints from industry that prompted its inclusion in the second iteration, industry argued that DOD does not effectively apply purely price-based best value estimations, or in the common parlance of the acquisition community, more often called lowest price, technically acceptable, versus those evaluations that actually do a better job of balancing price and non-price factors, what you and I might think of as much more of a trade-off methods. And there, starting with better buying power version 2.0, what DOD was really trying to do was take steps to ensure that it applies LPTA, lowest price, technically acceptable, in an appropriate and consistent manner. And it strived in particular to communicate to industry whether and to what extent it's willing to pay for performance over and above basic thresholds and, as appropriate, to evaluate bids in a manner that balances performance with price. So from an incentive standpoint, the logic underlying this approach is that industry will not fear making offers that convey the value they can deliver to DOD even if it comes at a higher price, as opposed to avoiding making these kinds of offers so that they do not risk losing business. So that, I think, is a major initiative in thinking about the source selection decisions and really how to incentivize industry and at the same time standardize and apply more consistent practices. Now, DOD can harness a variety of contract types or essentially means of compensating vendors. And it does this often, you know, using two different types of contracts, fixed price and cost plus. In fixed price contracts, the government's essentially paying a vendor a fixed price for providing a good or service and essentially compensating them on output. While for a cost plus contract, they're essentially compensating them on inputs, things like labor. The preference for fixed price contracts stems from the idea that uh, if you provide vendors with a strong cost control incentive, In other words, if vendor costs end up being more than anticipated, 
They own it. It goes against their profit margin because the price is fixed. But Zach has alluded several times to research. And we know from research that the DOD has done and the GAO has done that that's not always the case, that the fixed price is fixed. And the reason for that is that it's fixed only to the extent that the scope of the work remains unchanged. But it often does change. And when it does, the contract has to change with it. Now, those fixed price contracts tend to be used for contracts, you know, where the cost would otherwise likely remain under control anyway. So earlier we talked about things like simple products, like landscaping services or office supplies. What really matters, it seems, is less the distinction between fixed price and cost plus, and more the specific incentive the contract type provides. For example, DOD's own research suggests that there are intermediate types of contracts, tying cost control directly to profitability in an effort to motivate vendors. And they've used these type of contracts in a range of high-profile programs. But it's important to remember that a contract type is not a panacea, and it's not a one-size-fits-all for every situation. It's really about using the right tool for the right job under the right conditions. And as Zach pointed out, this is where time becomes an important element, both with the certainty of the set of requirements and the certainty of the budget process, but also the relative complexity of what it is you're trying to buy. That's great. Dave, what are some of the challenges uh, DOD leadership will face in this area? I think it's understanding what types of incentives work, as well as being able to help the workforce understand the conditions for when to apply one kind of incentive versus another. You know, as with competition, using the appropriate contract type and source selection methodology is a matter of both education and experience. And these are skills that take time to develop. And that's why I highlighted earlier the concern about the the workforce that potentially might leave the government in ensuing years, right? It takes education and experience to develop those kind of skills. And this is ultimately about using the right tool for the right job under the right conditions. What are the principal challenges for DOD leadership in tackling its acquisition bureaucracy? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. What are the strategic priorities for the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division? How does the FBI's CJIS Division foster information sharing across the law enforcement enterprise? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Stephen Morris, Assistant Director, Criminal Justice Information Services Division within the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with David Vance Lyke and Zach Cointink of Syracuse University. Zach, this one's for you. And DOD's acquisition workforce makes a vital contribution to national security, which Dave mentioned earlier, but it must negotiate a, a, a complex web of rules. And I'm interested to understand, and your report does a wonderful job of highlighting this, what has DOD's leaders done to reduce unproductive processes 
and the bureaucracy as a key initiative across all three versions of better buying power. Progress has been made, but what more do you guys think needs to be done? Beginning with Better Buying Power 1.0 and in ensuing versions, DOD, both as an enterprise and at that service and component level, initiated a set of reviews to look at whether we have the right players overseeing the process in the right way, whether we have the right reports, the right paperwork, the right mechanisms by which to get insight into a program. Do we have too much? Do we have too little? Do we have the right kinds of things? Or do we have the wrong kinds of things? Now, that work will, of course, remain ongoing for, I I think, quite a while, um, both with respect to better buying power and with recent legislation, the the House Armed Services Committee under Congressman Thornberry and the Senate Armed Services Committee under Senator McCain have really taken a serious look at this and I think expressed a credible commitment to trying to revisit this process and on a, a... a slow but sure basis to try to scale back some of that thicket that the doers or the executors have sort of found themselves in. So what are some of the challenges in tackling the acquisition bureaucracy within DOD? Sure. Good question. So in our report, we looked at a particular component of the reduce unproductive processes and bureaucracy initiative. We looked at clarifying that acquisition chain of command there's a push on the Hill and within sort of the, the subject matter expert community that looks at national defense to revisit Goldwater Nichols to see what parts have really worked and what parts really haven't and could potentially be revisited. Now, the, the debate going forward is really, is that the right chain of command? Are there some other players who ought to be involved? And one issue that is not within the confines of better buying power, but which has been sort of a point of contention between the defense acquisition community, particularly the senior leadership and members of the Congress, is how do we involve the military service chiefs more? They're effectively divorced on account of the Goldwater-Nichols legislation and the pieces of the Packard report that were built into it. They're effectively divorced from that little a acquisition process. Um, As that process unfolds, they have less and less influence over how the program sort of takes shape. However, to the extent a program takes shape in a bad way, um, if it unfolds and effectively becomes a train wreck, the person who's hauled in front of the committee is usually that service chief. I'm simplifying a bit, but there are at least two sort of major solutions to this. One is what you might think of as an informal solution, taking some steps or doing some things to try to get that service chief and their staff inserted into the little a acquisition process on a more concerted basis, motivating them to remain engaged in lieu of stepping back after that that process has effectively started. Because there are some opportunities for the service chief and their staff to remain involved. It's sort of a, a question of what their own management priorities are. Or the second option or approach, which you could think of as the formal approach, is to pass legislation that effectively gives that service chief authority that is otherwise invested in those other players in that formal acquisition chain of command. To sum up, the real challenge in terms of, in particular, clarifying and maintaining that chain of command is getting the right people involved in the right way. So Dave, to accomplish its mission, DOD relies on a large multifaceted portfolio of contract provided support services. How has the department sought to improve its acquisition of services as part of the Better Buying Power Initiative? 
And what actions have been introduced today to improve service acquisitions? So, you know, that's a really good question, Michael. And under Better Buying Power, there have been actions taken to improve tradecraft in services acquisition. And I think that's a major step forward and an important evolution from versions 1.0 forward. And they've ranged from relatively uh, easily implemented adjustments in the department's management structure to building things like an enterprise-level approach or taxonomy for being able to track services contract spending. So there have been any number of reports that have come out that often talk about the lack of kind of business acumen and market-based knowledge and engagement on the analytical side among the acquisition workforce. And so here it's thinking about, you know, how do we make smarter use of competition? How do we employ more effective source selection techniques? How do we think about contract type as different tools at our disposal and not simply one tool that we default to all the time? So again, analytically getting the acquisition workforce to put multiple of these tools in combination with one another, thinking about what they want to do, how they want to do it, the time period under which they need to do it, and whether there are specialized conditionalities that they have to account for. Now, now these latter changes are going to take a little bit more time to, to diffuse down into the agency culture. It's going to require training, more education, and to extent, as I, as I said, the word here is it's going, to, it's going to have to change the prevailing culture that really undergirds the acquisition enterprise. And I think, as you can see in our report, that was an important evolution in BBP, better buying power, between version 1.0 and 2.0. And it's clear in version 3.0 that the broader community is, uh, you know, especially at the industry level, is being heard about, okay, if you want to engage us, here are some ways to think about engaging us. It's not this kind of one-size-fits-all approach in every situation. So, gentlemen, before we get into the lessons that you outline or the recommendations that you make in your report, I have a question for both of you, and it really gets to the heart of it. Are these initiatives living up to their promise of moving defense acquisition beyond business as usual? This is a a hard question. to. It's a fundamental question in some sense, but it's also a a hard question to answer in an aggregate sense for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, obviously, better buying power itself is a big, multifaceted, multi-version um, change program. There are a variety of initiatives underlying it, and underlying each initiative are a number of individual action items. And I think to to gauge success, you really have to get down to that granular level and measure what's going on by an item by item and initiative by initiative basis. In some sense, it's just far too complex to make a sort of grand or sweeping judgment about better buying power writ large. And insofar as the initiative can be measured, or excuse me, the success of better buying power can be measured on an initiative by initiative or action item by action item basis, that definition of success is really going to vary. And moreover, um, what does success look like on an initiative or even an action item by action item basis? To return to our earlier conversation regarding contract types, of course, just tracking the application of a particular desired contract type across space or across time, 
that's in no way in and of itself a valid gauge of whether we're really improving our performance or not improving our performance. But for the sake of argument, say that as a, as a component of success, we wanted to look at, again, the application of that type over time and over space. The problem is, again, as Dave suggested earlier, and as the DOD leadership continuously points out, DOD uses a variety of contract types for a reason, because a given contract type does not befit every circumstance. So to simply stick a stake in the ground and say, in the past, we were using these types, we're gauging success by the fact that going forward, we're using this particular type um, exclusively or much more often. That's not really valid. That's not really a, a means of gauging success because some of this boils down to judgment and good judgment is going to be manifest in the application of different practices under different sets of circumstances and not in the consistent application of a practice regardless of the circumstances. And this would be an example, Michael, where, you know, even once a, a particular approach or a practice is, is adopted, that doesn't guarantee success in terms of cost or schedule and performance. I mean, the, that goes back to the point we were trying to make earlier. The, these outcomes are hard to control. And to the extent that there's a positive link, you know, we have to do what, what we should always do, which is we have to ask about the counterfactual. Uh, would this have happened, you know, had this practice not been applied? And, you know, perhaps things would have turned out worse, but perhaps the status quo would have remained. So the question is, is the intervention driving the improved outcomes? And, and you know, establishing this kind of causal link is very, very difficult in a system as complex and as dynamic as defense acquisition. But that's, that's part of what we were trying to do here is, you know, at least at some level, think about how the de department, you know, th they are enjoying some success in embedding some of these practices and approaches, such as should cost, for example, but are these the initiatives that are bringing about meaningful change? And, and, you know, when you think about this, leadership gets some real credit here. There's been some real continuity in having Secretary Carter and Undersecretary Kendall continue to have leadership roles within the agency that have gone far beyond the kind of normal, you know, 24-month tenure of a, of a traditional political appointee. So their leadership, their expertise, their legitimacy, their ownership of this has given it some momentum. The question is, can that momentum be sustained? You know, and, and those associated improvements in performance outcomes, can they become more formalized, standardized, and embedded within a changed culture of the agency? I think that's what we want to continue looking at. What can federal agencies learn from DOD's Better Buying Power initiatives? We will explore this question and so much more when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. 
The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with David Vance Lyke and Zach Cointink of Syracuse University. So, uh, Zach, DOD's experience with crafting and implementing core initiatives under the Better Buying Power uh, effort reveals a number of lessons for acquisition executives and senior procurement officers. Uh, could you elaborate on those lessons learned that you identify in your IBM Center report? Yes. So lesson one, when you're doing something like this, it's good to appreciate that acquisition is almost everyone's business anymore for a given agency. Acquisition and contracting are a flavor of the day, whether individuals appreciate it or not, or again, legitimately so have that strong operational focus. Acquisition and contracting figure into performance and they figure into success and they have implications for how the agency does. So in designing an initiative of this kind, incorporate all of the stakeholders. Who has a role to play in acquisition and contracting? Map that landscape and don't leave anyone out. Um, And understand that lesson two, there are some strong forces that work to preserve business as usual. Over the course of our conversation, we've alluded to a number of them. So things aren't going to change overnight. There are some incentives baked into the underlying process and the underlying organization that really do counteract the implementation and use of of good practices. Um, Lesson three, we talked about something called creep in a general sense. So putting a practice in place, but also keeping an eye on it, not letting it in and of itself grow out of control. So if we return, for example, to something like strategic sourcing or category management, moving from a lot of individual procurements to uh, procuring on a broad aggregate basis Sticking a stake in the ground, consolidating purchasing vehicles, for example, but then making sure that they remain consolidated in lieu of growing out of control again. So this idea of creep applies in a lot of places. Also in acquisition, contracting, and procurement is something to keep an eye on. Uh, Lesson four, communication, we think, is always sort of subject to varying interpretation. So if we return to something, say, like contract types, in Better Buying Power 1.0, then Undersecretary Carter expressed and signaled some interest in greater use of, say, fixed-price type approaches to product development work that is otherwise usually carried out on a cost-plus basis. And by Better Buying Power 2.0, the leadership's sense was that that practice had been somewhat overapplied, hence the aggregate shift from best practices to sort of professionalism, right tool for the right job, and in particular, emphasis on using the right contract type for the right job. But that's just one example in the case of better buying power where some individuals may have interpreted the language as more the letter of the law and others interpreted it more as the leadership would have had them interpret it as sort of a a suggested best practice that befits a particular type of circumstances. Lesson five, following through. Without making a credible commitment to follow through, to levy sanctions, and to reward good behavior, behavior to sanction 
bad behavior. Nothing's going to change. You can write memos, you can make statements, you can express principles, but if you don't act on them and don't follow through, it's just a sort of common sense everyday notion, nothing's going to change. Um, lesson six, when it comes to putting some practices in place, the only time really to start is early. So if we return to our, our conversation regarding strategies for creating and maintaining competitive environments, again, acquiring those intellectual property rights, um, getting the rights and the information that you need and the ability to release it to third parties so that there's more of a plug and play as opposed to lock into a particular vendor. The ship has sailed. If, if that's not done at the program start early in the program, essentially the, the ship has sailed. That practice really can't be used. Uh, lesson, lesson seven, uh, it sounds trite, but we say knowledge is power. Data-driven decision-making is really important. Just getting a sense of what's going on, what practices are working, and what practices aren't. And finally, lesson eight, sort of a takeaway lesson, be realistic and be patient in, in systems as big and as complex as the federal acquisition enterprise, as DOD in particular, but even in the civilian agencies or DHS, things aren't even with good follow through and application of the appropriate practices in the appropriate way. Things aren't obviously just aren't going to change overnight. Now, I, under no illusion that federal leaders don't appreciate that, but th this is just one particular context in which really does take some time, some concerted effort, um, some investment, some sunk costs before the benefits really come to fruition. And for example, in, in the defense case, the, the benefits of these practices may not show up for years, literally may not show up for years until the success of those programs has really been tracked and manifests itself over time. So pay, as, as is just said in the general lingo, patience is a virtue. Dave, uh, what should better buying power look like as it evolves beyond version 3.0? Well, you know, Michael, that's a that's a great question. And and uh, I think if Zach and I had the answer for this, we, we might not be studying some of these things. We might have some other opportunities. Um, you know, I think we were cautious about being prognosticators, but specifying precisely what a better buying power 4.0 uh, might look like, while somewhat beyond the scope of our effort, we did see some places where we uh, wanted to point to areas that DOD might wish to emphasize if or when it launches a future iteration. So first, for example, would be, you know, continuing to pursue the ideal of agile acquisition, thinking about how to develop systems, processes, and skill sets that can contribute to developing and fielding capabilities in a faster and especially in a more incremental fashion, right? That, that would help make, it, make acquisition more responsive to a, a very complex, dynamic, and ever-changing threat environment. And that could actually improve performance and lower costs over the, over the period of the acquisition itself. The next was thinking about how to build partnerships. And I know that that's very common to say, and it may seem cliche, but actually we were thinking about building partnerships outside the traditional industrial base, thinking about how to leverage and tap into the ideas and expertise of suppliers who otherwise operate in commercial environments as opposed to simply governmental marketplaces. And while I know that there are a number of vendors, companies within the industrial base who have arms that actually uh, work in the government space and the commercial space, I also know that to some extent, like governments, 
different parts of an organization don't always really speak well and 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 have the the highest levels of information exchange and co- cooperation and coordination. And so then also thinking about how to maintain and enhance the focus on improving services acquisition. So DOD's just begun to kind of scratch the surface in this area. And I think one of the things that we heard in the more than two dozen interviews that we uh, conducted with many, many subject matter experts, we kept hearing over and over and over again, staying focused on improving services acquisition and thinking about enhancing its own capabilities, but also being able to tap the very rich array of vendors in a services market for which there are a great many. And while it's not in our report, I think we would also stress that a future iteration has to emphasize the benefit of working with small businesses and trying to reduce and knock down some of the barriers these vendors are confronting when trying to work with the federal government. And and so I think, you know, a a 4.0 might have some of these features to it, and that might help it go on to become more sustainable, more effective, and more deeply embedded with a culture of performance and spend analysis and cost management and thinking about not only taxpayers, but maximizing, you know, the mission capabilities for our warfighters. So those were some of the ideas that we had about what a future iteration might look like. A wonderful way to end our conversation today, Dave. I want to thank you and Zach for being on the show and taking time out of your busy schedule to join me and talk about a very important report. So thanks, gentlemen, for joining me. Michael, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Michael. This was a great experience. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with David Vance Lyke and Zach Hoytink of Syracuse University and authors of the IBM Center Report, Beyond Business as Usual, Improving Defense Acquisition Through Better Buying Power. You can order or download a free copy of this IBM Center report and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are the strategic priorities for the FBI's Criminal Justice Information Services Division? How does the FBI's CJIS Division foster information sharing across the law enforcement enterprise? Join host Michael J. Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Stephen Morris, Assistant Director, Criminal Justice Information Services Division within the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m.